Good stuff. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? We on? It's on now. I don't know what's inside. No, it's not. Can you bring up uh, a different one? It's not turning on. Okay, I'll start off. I'm glad I don't have to scream the whole time. But I want to welcome everyone that's visiting or if you're a regular attender for this uh, last celebration of the Lord's resurrection. It's a great weekend for me. My youngest daughter got married last night. Amen. That's it. The message ended. Lots have changed. turn to the Gospel of John chapter 20. Thanks, Benjamin. How about now? Oh, look at that. Oh, my voice appreciates it. So anyway, but I, I want to fill you in. If you're new with us, we have been experiencing a great wave of visitors who really want to learn the Bible. I think people are finally at the point of saying, you know what, I'm tired of just going through the motions of religion. I want to believe something. And so a lot of people have commented as they've come here because they're not coming from churches that teach the Bible. If you're in a church that teaches the Bible, this isn't a big shock to you, but many of you are coming from churches where you know what to say and you go through the motions, but the Bible hasn't really been something that you read regularly, something that is meaningful and life-changing. So if you're just getting started with us, we want you to feel welcome to join us as we study the Gospel of John together. All of the, the studies that we've done are available on, online if you want to get back and catch up. But if this is your first time just hearing from the Bible, it's amazing how many people I meet who say, oh, I already read the Bible, and they know nothing. The very basic, most simple things, like what does the Bible say about how to go to heaven? Oh, you know, be a good person. I'm going, please stop talking. You don't know what the Bible says. But we want you to. And so one of the things that the Bible teaches is that when you read the Bible, you should pray to God and ask him to help you understand it. So as we begin this morning, I want to invite you to join me as we pray, and then we'll just start reading the Bible. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us the Spirit. Thank you for rising from the dead. And Lord, I pray that your word will accomplish your purposes and that we will not be excited about a person, but about you and about your word. And Lord, I pray that the Spirit's power will help us to realize that because Jesus lives, it makes all the difference in the world. So change our lives, bring people to yourself, and send us out of here ready to serve you, forgiven of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you read the Bible, you'll find that in the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a whole lot is spent on the final week of Christ, his Passion Week. And so we learn one Friday at 9 a.m. in the morning, Christ was hung up on the cross, and for six hours, he suffered paying the penalty for our sins, and he uttered seven statements. But the last statement, he delivered his spirit into the hands of God, 
and having said it is finished, they then took his body off of the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But I want you to think about this, that Christ was busy even while he was buried, that his inner spirit had left his body, but he wasn't asleep. His body lay in the grave, but the Bible tells us, first of all, that he was in paradise. Jesus had said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So Jesus, in his inner spirit, was in paradise. We learn from 1 Peter 3 that during that time, he made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. And so some of you may have grown up in a church where you recited the Apostles' Creed that included he descended into hell. If he descended into hell, it wasn't to suffer. It wasn't to go, oh, I got to be beaten and burned for three days in hell. Jesus finished his payment for our sins on the cross. He said, it's finished. And I want you to think about the significance of that because there's not a whole lot of that being taught anymore. It frustrates and saddens me how many people downplay the significance of the crucifixion. It's either Jesus paid it all or he didn't pay anything at all. And yet church after church is telling us, be a good person, you have to go to purgatory, you have to keep the Ten Commandments or God's not going to let you into heaven. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says Christ came into the world to save sinners. He went up to the cross, he paid for my sins, he died and on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And he offers us full forgiveness, complete remission of our sins and eternal life. All we need to do is repent, be willing to turn to him, believe with all our heart that he's paid for our sins and experience a new life. So when Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible tells us that he didn't go back to heaven, but rather he spent 40 days on the earth. He was kind of on a reconnaissance mission because he had a purpose, and that was to confirm that he was truly alive. So the book of Acts says, for 40 days he appeared with many convincing proofs. He's like, guys, you got this. I'm really alive. They would touch him. They would eat with him. They would speak to him. He would show up and speak to them individually. One time he showed up and spoke to 500 people. But at the end of the day, we only have 10 accounts in the New Testament that we know about. There are 10 different resurrection appearances of Christ. They're not the only ones. Those are the ones that God kept for us in the scriptures. This morning, we're going to look at John's testimony of what he saw, what he experienced, and what God led him to write. And we're going to notice a number of things. Number one, we're going to notice that the resurrection was necessary. It was a necessary resurrection. In John 20, verse 9, it says, they didn't understand that he must rise from the dead. Why is it so necessary that he must rise? Secondly, we're going to look at the effects of Christ's ascension. Twice in this passage, he's going to say, don't touch me yet because I haven't ascended. So there's a resurrection, but there's also an ascension, and the ascension caused some things to happen. Third, we're going to look at his commission. He then appears to the disciples and he says, so send I you. And then last, we're going to look at a doubting skeptic's conversion. Some of you are a doubting skeptic. Some of you don't believe this stuff. Maybe you're here because your parents made you. Maybe you had a bad experience with church. Maybe you have intellectual things that are going, I don't know if I can believe this. And I hope that through the doubting skeptic's conversion that your heart will be changed today. But let's start in verses 1 through 10 where we see this necessary resurrection. Now, this is John describing his account. Start with me in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and 
And she saw that the stone was already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Now that's John's way of describing himself. And she said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've laid him. I really like Mary, maybe because before I came to Christ, I get it, what it's like to be out of your mind. My life was pretty messed up until Jesus forgave me and changed my life. Mary was a troubled soul. The Bible tells us that she was possessed by demons. But Jesus can take anybody, no matter what your damage, no matter what your past, no matter what your failures. And in a sincere encounter with Christ, you can get a fresh start, a new life. And when that happens, like it did to me, it gives you a whole new love for Jesus and a desire to serve him. And Mary is kind of always there, loving and serving and wanting to follow her Lord. But as she tells John and Peter, they've taken away the Lord, John says in verse 3, Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. Now every once in a while I'll read a verse in the Bible, I go, wow, why is that there? Like when Moses said in the book of Numbers, Moses was the most humble man in the earth. I'm like, Moses. John must have been maybe at his midlife crisis. Because look at verse 4. He says, the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. You're like, John, does it really matter who won? I mean, come on. He's like, it's not a big deal, but I'm just saying, right? And Peter's in the background going, yeah, well, tell him how old you were and how old I am. And he's like, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I got there first. But when he came to the tomb, it says he stooped and he looked in and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter, therefore, also came following him. He just entered in the tomb. He just ducked down and went right inside the tomb. And there he also saw the linen wrappings lying. And he also saw the face cloth. And maybe some of you have heard all of these magnificent stories about the Shroud of Turin. You know, oh, we have the Shroud of Turin. Sometimes it sort of wearies me when people are like, we can believe the Bible because a little boy had a dream. Heaven is for real. And I'm going, I already knew that. It says it in the Bible. So I'm really not all that preoccupied with whether or not we have the Shroud of Turin. The Bible says Jesus folded up his head cloth and put it there. I don't think that's a big deal in the Bible. But what is a big deal is in verse 8. It says, John saw and he believed. For as yet, he, they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Let me suggest that there's three reasons why the resurrection is so necessary, why it's so central to Christianity. First of all, Jesus made two astounding claims. One, that he was going to die for our sins, and the other is that he was going to rise again. And he often said them together. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to rise. <laughs> now, there was a lot at stake with the first part. Because Jesus spoke more about heaven than about hell. So, or I'm sorry, about hell than about heaven. So some of you who are new to the Bible, you're like, my God wouldn't put anybody in hell. Please stop saying that until you read the Bible. Or at least say, well, the God of the Bible puts people in hell. He doesn't want to put people in hell. He doesn't delight to put people in hell. But he's holy, he hates sin, and sin has to be punished. Because he didn't want to put anybody in hell, the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
Jesus came down to this earth as a, as a substitute to die in our place. So God could look at Christ and say, Tom, you deserve to go to hell, but I will accept Christ's sacrifice instead of you. Jesus went up to the cross, and he suffered instead of us. It wasn't just that somebody poked him in the hands. God was punishing Christ for our sins, and he was freely satisfying God's wrath. He was paying a debt he didn't owe because I owed a debt I couldn't pay. Now, that makes me really grateful to Christ. But if he didn't rise from the dead, I would always wonder, did God accept his sacrifice? He said he was going to pay for my sins, and God would say, that's it. I can forgive you now. But he also said he's coming back. If he didn't come back from the grave, I'd always wonder, did he accept Christ's sacrifice? You ever notice how some of the movies end with the bad guy getting blown up in a building? But these guys aren't dumb. They're going, we got to get a sequel out of this. So then right at the end, you're like, but was he really in the building? Did he really die? Is he going to open his eye and show up somewhere? There's a sense in which the resurrection of Christ gives me a perfect satisfaction. Look, look, it's proof that God accepted his sacrifice. So I got good news for you. Do you want to be forgiven of your sin? You don't need to do anything other than what he did on the cross. Our salvation is full and freely purchased by Christ. By one sacrifice, he satisfied God's anger. So what we do is we repent and we believe that. We don't have to add to the cross. I can't tell you how many people I ask them, why should God let you into heaven? Well, I try this and I do this and I do that and I go, stop, please. Because everything you add to the cross, you're insulting the Lord Jesus. Because he didn't say, I'll split it with you. He said, it's finished. I am so thankful that Christ bore my sins and he proved it by his resurrection. The second reason why he had to rise from the dead is because it's promised in the scriptures. It says they didn't understand the scripture. You see, God didn't raise Jesus as a last-ditch effort. He planned it before Christ was even born. He planned it before he created the world. He planned that Christ would be slain and that he would come out of the grave. And so the Old Testament contains numerous predictions of the coming resurrection of Christ. And so if you're still trying to figure out whether you want to be a Christian, you don't have to take your brains off. You don't have to go against all evidence, I'm going to follow Jesus. Think about the significance of these predictions. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the Old Testament scriptures were already written. No one debates that. The Dead Sea Scrolls have been discovered. They date back hundreds of years before Christ. What are the chances of predicting such detailed information, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, but particularly the psalmist and Isaiah and David spoke of the resurrection of Christ. And so if you were talking to a Jewish person, you could say, hey man, is Jesus the Messiah? No, he's not the Messiah. And this is what I always say. Then who is? Well, I don't know, but I just know he isn't. Well, what does the Bible say about him? It says he will suffer and he will rise from the dead. Is there any reason to believe that it couldn't be Jesus, the risen Messiah? His resurrection was proof that God accepted his sacrifice. It's promised in the scripture, and frankly, it provides me a reason to live. It gives me hope. You know, I don't know what you think about death, but as Crazy Eye said in 
Mr. Deeds, I don't like it. I don't want to die. Frankly, if there's an easy pass around death, put me down for that. The Bible says that one day, most of us are going to die. Our only option is if Christ comes back before then. So most of us are going to face the last enemy death. And I don't look forward to that, but I know this, that death for the Christian is just a pathway across the river into everlasting life. But it isn't pretty. We just sang, and then one day I'll cross the river and fight life's final war with pain. But then when death gives way to victory, I'll see the light of glory and I'll know he lives. And so in the same way, as I bury my loved ones, as I mourn and grieve, as we as shepherds to you try to offer you comfort, may I remind you that because Christ lives, we can face tomorrow. And may I say to all of you who have lost a Christian loved one, you have not lost a Christian loved one. Something is only lost when you don't know where it is. They're not lost. We know exactly where they are. And before we know it, Christ is coming again. And we will come out of the ground. And the Bible says, the Lord himself will descend and he will raise us up. And thus we shall ever be with the Lord. So in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your fear, in the midst of your sorrow, remember Christ said, because I live, you shall live also. So let the resurrection provide you with a reason to live and with hope as we face death. But John decided to then reveal to us some truths about Christ's ascension. He didn't just come out of the grave, but he was going to return to God the Father. And there's some mystery to this. Look with me in verse 11. It says, Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stood and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white sitting one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away the Lord. I, I, I don't know where they've laid him. She probably thought someone stole his body. When she had said this, she turned around and she beheld Jesus standing there. She didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I'll take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned. And I imagine trembling, she said to him, Rabboni. Imagine, imagine the emotions going through her mind. Is, is, it, is that you? My teacher, my master, my Lord. And I assume in all of her, her, her tears and joy at the same time, she, she falls down at the feet of Jesus like we will one day. And she clings to his precious legs and, and she begins to weep and hug him with joy. And Jesus says, please stop. Well, why? Look at verse 17. He said to her, stop clinging to me. Well, why? He says, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. What does he mean by that? I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
Well, I want to suggest there's something interesting in the Old Testament that might help us understand this. In the Old Testament, we learn that God was teaching us that the only way he could forgive sin is if an innocent substitute died in our place. And so they began to sacrifice animals in the Old Testament, a spotless lamb, and they would put their hand on the head of this innocent lamb and they would confess their sins. And then this lamb would be brutally slaughtered and pour out its blood and die. And in God's providence, he had prepared this. He said, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so he said, look, if you're going to have a relationship with me, there has to be a sacrifice. And not only does there have to be a sacrifice, but you need a mediator between me and you. And so God raised up in the Old Testament a priesthood, and he selected one individual called the high priest. And once a year, that high priest would offer a special sacrifice. Jewish people today call it Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that high priest, when he would offer that sacrifice, they had a special tabernacle and a special place in their temple that, that God's presence dwelt behind a curtain. And that priest, once a year, he would, he would take that blood behind the curtain with fear and trembling. He would spread the blood on the altar, and God says that he would cover our sins. But they'd do it again year after year. But when Christ came to this earth and he shed his blood on the cross, the book of Hebrews says in chapter 9, Jesus did not enter into an earthly temple to offer a sacrifice, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor did he bring the blood of bulls and goats, but he brought that one offering, that sacrifice of himself to God. What a mysterious moment that God came into the presence of Jesus that Jesus came into the presence of God, and together God looked on the finished work of Christ, and he approved it, and Jesus sat down forever. And this is why you and I as Christians, while we are forgiven, we realize that we're frail, and we're faulty, and we're foolish, and we make mistakes. And the Bible always reminds us to go back to that sacrifice of our crucified Savior, who ascended and is seated at the right hand of God. John said it this way in 1 John 2, 1. I write these things to you so that you do not sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who satisfied God's wrath on behalf of our sins. And so the ascension of Christ is significant because it reminds me that Christ brought a perfect sacrifice into the presence of God. So when Satan reminds me how bad I am, I look away to Christ and I remind him how good he is. Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. The ascended Christ has offered this sacrifice. But there's a third thing and that's found in the next section in verses 19 and that is there's a spirit-empowered commission. Although Jesus showed up over and over again, a couple times he drilled into the guys, hey, listen, you got a job to do. And he made it very specific. Verse 19 says, when therefore it was evening, on the first day of the week, when the doors were shut and the disciples were there for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. 
wait a minute, if the doors were shut, and later we'll read the doors were locked, how did he stand in their midst? Think about what that was like. Imagine going to a funeral of your dearest friend who was brutally murdered, going back to your house for fear that you're going to be murdered, bolting the door locked, you turn around in your tears, and there he is sitting on your couch. There's a lot of mystery to that. But I want you to know this, that Christ was not just a spooky ghost. When Jesus came out of the ground, he had a body of flesh and bones. He said, touch me. I'm not a ghost. He said, give me something to eat. He went out of his way to affirm the goodness and glory of a resurrected body. So I want you to brush away from your minds that Christians, when, when, when Christ returns, we spend eternity floating around like little angels playing harps. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we're resurrected from the dead and that on a new heaven and a new earth, God himself will dwell with us and we will have risen, glorified bodies like Christ. And you're like, will we be able to walk through walls? I would suggest that you don't practice for this. If it happens, let it happen at its time. But it's powerful to consider that we were created to be raised in body. And Jesus manifests himself. But notice, as he manifests himself, he's still affirming them. Verse 20, he showed them his hands in his side. And the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. But now let's look at this commission. He says, guys, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. What do you mean, as the Father has sent me? Now, they knew what he meant by that. He drummed this into their head from day one. You're of the earth. I'm from heaven. You don't know my Father. I know the Father. The Father sent me, John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God sent Jesus into a sinful, hostile, dark, rebellious world to offer free and full forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And it's never been any different. God sent Christ to save the world. And the message of the Bible is this. If you want to know God, if you want to be forgiven, you can only come to him through Jesus. Paul said it this way. This is a trustworthy statement. It's full of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to send sinners. But for reasons known only to God, he decided that Christ would only stay for 33 years and then he would leave it up to us. And so he says, as the Father sent me into the world to rescue sinners, so I'm sending you. And you're like, me? Lord, I'm not like Pastor Tom. I can't just go down to the train station and just start preaching to people. And Jesus goes, I know that. Thank God you're not like Pastor Tom. <laughs> but nevertheless, he still said, I send you. Each one of us has been called and commissioned by Christ. 
to advance the gospel, to make disciples. Now, there's lots of different ways to do that, through acts of service, deeds of love. And the most interesting part about that is it's not about the stranger on the bus. 80% of people that come to Christ come through friends and family members. It's your neighbors. It's your coworkers. It's your friends. It's your family. And Christ is commissioning you and me to say, hey, I'm sending you, Tom. And so when you walk out of this building, you're on a commission. You are going to be my hands and feet to advance the gospel, to help others come to know me, to help those who do know me to grow strong in the spirit. And I go, Lord, I can't. And God goes, I don't need your ability, Tom. I just need your availability. Because you'll notice that with this commission comes a wonderful enablement of power. Look at verse 21. He says, I send you. But then he says in verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And you say, what's that mean? Now, some of you have read the Bible and you'll, re and you'll remember that there was this great event in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And at the day of Pentecost, the Bible says that God poured out his spirit on all of those who believed. And every one of them was empowered and indwelt permanently and transformed by the Holy Spirit. And many Bible scholars, for reasons known only to them, try to reconcile Pentecost with this. And they go, this is John's way of describing Pentecost. And I go, I don't know about you guys, but this says it was on the first day that Jesus rose. Pentecost was 40 days later. So this is not Pentecost. Well, then what is it? Well, try this one. I'm cheap when it comes to buying gas. I don't like paying 263 when I can get it for 249. So if I have to pay 263, I'll pull in there and say, you're not getting my money. I'll just get enough to tie me over until I can get it for 249. So if you ever see me alongside the road with a gas can, you'll be like, he miscalculated. <laughs> but can I suggest that somehow this pre-enablement was enough to tie them over? That this wasn't the full and finality of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church. But this is, as, as Matthew Henry said, a little down payment of Pentecost to come. But I don't want you to think little of this because this is really important. Because whatever this little taste of the Spirit of God was that they got then, we got the whole thing. Your tank is filled. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. When people say to you, oh, well, did you speak in tongues yet? How do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? Say, because my Bible says in Romans 8 verse 9, if any man does not have the Holy Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. You have the Holy Spirit if you're a Christ follower. If you are a believer, the Spirit of God permanently has come to indwell you. You don't need to get any more Holy Spirit. He just needs to get some more of you and me. Because our problem is not that we need the Spirit. Our problem is that the Spirit is often grieved when we don't surrender to the Lord. That the Spirit is quenched when we don't allow the Spirit to use us. That the Spirit resists working in us when we don't depend on him through prayer. 
But can I remind you, my brothers and sisters, God has given us the Spirit, and we are a Spirit-endowed, Spirit-enabled, Spirit-empowered church. And we're not growing because we give away TVs to the person who brings the most friends. We're not growing because we put big signs up and say, come and join us. God said, I will do my work not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. We're not growing because we're promising you a life of happiness and no more pain, no more sickness, just plenty of riches. We're preaching a pure gospel of a risen Christ who was crucified, who's risen, who's coming again and who hasn't changed the terms of his salvation when he said, go and preach forgiveness of sins if they repent and believe in me. And so you'll notice that in this empowering commission, Jesus says in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, that's a tough verse. And I want you to understand that there are some tough verses in the Bible. Can we... Can we, can we think about that for a moment? Does this mean that Jesus have, has given to humans the ability to forgive sins? Does this mean that I can go to my priest and tell him all the bad things that I've done and he can tell me to say 10 rosaries and he can promise me that I'm forgiven? Can I tell you that's not what this means? There is no man on earth that can forgive sins. The Bible says in Mark chapter 2, no one can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus was entrusting to the apostles not this special human authority to forgive sins, but the authority to pronounce the forgiveness of sins on all those who repent and believe in him. And so later on when John wrote 1 John chapter 2, he said, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven for his namesake. So for some of you, you've got some thinking to do because you've been taught that it's the Father who pronounces your forgiveness. Father McBride. Or it's the Pope who pronounces your forgiveness. Or somehow there's something that you have to do to earn your penance through Christ. Can I tell you, there's only one mediator between God and man, and it's Jesus. And on the authority of the word of God, I can tell you this. If you come to Jesus, the best you know how, cut out all the other middlemen. You don't need the priest. You don't need the preacher. Just you and Jesus. You come to God through Jesus and say, Lord, I believe that you died. And I repent of my sin. I'm willing to live for you and no longer for me. Would you forgive me and accept me? On that basis, I promise you from the word of God that your sins are forgiven. Not because I forgave them, but because God's word promised that. And some of you this morning are going, well, I'm a little skeptical about that. Well, guess what? You're not the first skeptic. And you won't be the last skeptic. But I could tell you this, the halls of hell are lined with sorry skeptics who didn't do some seeking. And so if you're skeptical this morning and you go, I don't know whether I believe all this stuff. I'm not really sure that I'm going to throw my lot in and follow Jesus with all my heart. Okay, let's talk about it for just a few moments. Doubting Thomas, verse 24, it says, Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. 
Where was he? It was Sunday night service. This is what happens when you're not in church. You know what? For some of you, one of the reasons why you're not experiencing any connection with Christ is because you show up once in a while. And it saddens me every, every Easter to go, see you at Christmas. And so can I encourage some of you to do something different and say, I'm not just going to come in on Easter and prance around in my new clothes or make sure Mama's happy so I can come over for some ham. But come to Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, you're going to want to be with Jesus. And you're going to want to be with others who love the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus, in his mercy, he appears to Thomas. But Thomas says, unless I see the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now that is a skeptic. I'm not going to believe. Jesus could have said, well, that's fine. You'll believe on judgment day. But in his mercy... Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas with them, and Jesus came. And in his compassion, Jesus offers himself to, to Thomas and says, Look, reach here your fingers. Verse 27. Touch my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. Now, for some of you this morning, if Jesus Christ himself was standing right here, he wouldn't tell you anything different from what he just said. Stop being an unbeliever. Today I invite you, stop it. Because there's a difference between a good sound excuse and an excuse that sounds good. If you're not a believer, there's one of three reasons. One, you don't understand that Christ died and rose again. The scriptures predicted it. And you thought you had to earn your salvation. So you can come, become a believer right now. Lord, I believe with all my heart. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. Some of you are not a believer because you have intellectual questions. You go, there, you know, I want to be a believer. I, 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 I'm interested in, in finding Christ, but I don't understand how Christians could have killed people in the crusade. I don't understand why God could allow people to suffer, but I want to be a believer. I just have some intellectual questions. But I want to suggest that there are many people in America who are unbelievers for a volitional reason. They don't want to be a believer. They realize the implications of what it means to be a believer. If I'm a believer, then I'm going to follow Jesus. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to change. I don't want God telling me what to do. And I want you to just think that through with me for just a moment or two. First of all, how's that been working for you so far? Even if you say, fantastic, I don't need God, I leave him alone, I don't bother him, he doesn't bother me. Can I tell you, you're headed for a train wreck. Because Jesus said in Mark 16, he that does not believe is condemned. And like it or not, God created you and he has a right to judge you. Maybe you say, but I don't want to give up my fun. And Jesus goes, well, let's think about that. What good is it to gain the whole world? and to lose your own soul. You say, but, but Tom, come on, I like to have a little fun on the side. You know how it is. And Jesus says, if your right hand's causing you to sin, if I was you, I'd cut it off. Better to enter into heaven without a hand than into hell. Can you think of any good reason this morning why you would not want to become a Christ follower? You say, well, Tom, what would that look like if I truly, if I go, you know what? You got through to me this morning. What would that look like? Well, let's look at what it looked like for Thomas, and we'll close with that. 
Jesus looks at Thomas and, and Thomas looks at him in verse 28 and he says, my Lord and my God. When you call Jesus your Lord, you are acknowledging that you are entrusting yourself to follow him now. Forgive me, my Lord. Don't call him that if you're not willing to follow him. Jesus says, why would you call me Lord? And you won't do what I say. So the appropriate response of faith is to say, Jesus, you are my Lord. I believe in you and I surrender my will to you, and I trust you to become from this day my Lord and Savior. And the moment you do that, there's a lightning bolt from heaven. You won't feel it happen, but you will be fully, freely, and permanently forgiven. And you say, well, the only way I'll do that is if Jesus comes down here and he shows me the holes in his hands. And I ask you, do you have a hole in your head? Do you really need him to show you his hands? Look at verse 29. Jesus says, Thomas, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Do you think all these people are in here because they're crazy nuts following some fake story? Or are these people just like you? People like me who have just been transformed by the risen Christ. If you want to get a blessing this morning, Jesus just told you how. Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. I want to invite you this morning to become a fully forgiven follower of Christ. And the terms are clear. Believe with all your heart. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I won't cast them out. Will you come today to Christ, just as you are, and he will fully and freely forgive you, you'll shout for joy one day that you made a decision to stop being a doubting skeptic and to be a forgiven follower. You don't have to have all the answers, but know this, Jesus loves you. He died and he rose. But know this also, he's coming again. And the decision is yours. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you change some people's minds this morning, that you change some people's hearts this morning, that there will be many doubting skeptics who will walk away this morning with the burden of their heart rolled away. And may the rest of us go out rejoicing that we are freely forgiven. Your sacrifice has paid for us. We have your peace today. We've been empowered by the Spirit. We have the gifts of the Spirit. And as a church, we march forward in your power, in your glory, with your word. Bless each family here, each person that knows Christ. And draw many more to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful holiday today. If you have any questions, I'll be here or ask someone that you came with. But we'd love to help you to know Christ, give you a Bible or pray with you.